0: So I'm reading from uh, Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12, and it's an epic Jesus story. So if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up there with me and we're going we're gonna to take a read. All right, Mark 2, 1 to 12. Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and the news of his arrival spread quickly through the town. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there wasn't room for one more person, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't get to Jesus through the crowd. So they dug through the clay roof above his head. Could you imagine that in the room all of a sudden? and what's coming down, all that clay and roof material coming down. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there said to themselves, what? This is blasphemy. Who but God can forgive sins? Jesus knew what they were discussing among themselves. So he said to them, why do you think this is blasphemy? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or get up, pick up your mat and walk. I will prove that I, the son of man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, take your mat, And go on home, because you are healed. The man jumped up, took the mat, and pushed his way through the stunned onlookers. Then they all praised God. We've never seen anything like this before, they exclaimed.
1: What a great story. I think what a fantastic story of just exclaiming who Jesus Christ is. But who is Jesus Christ to you? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Who is Jesus Christ? When we are going through life, who is Jesus? And how is he important in your life? We're going back to school for some next week, or back to college, or back to university, or if you're a teacher, back to school, or back to work. Who is Jesus? in the everyday. who was Jesus on a Sunday, and who was Jesus from the Monday to the Saturday. I've got some quotes on the, on the wall here of some, of some people and, and their views of Jesus over history. And I think it's interesting to understand who these are. My first quote is from, I don't know, there we go, Gandhi. And he says this, this is what Gandhi says of Jesus. What then does Jesus mean to me? To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity ever had. So for Gandhi, Jesus was a great teacher. That's good. For Bear Grylls, Bear Grylls, a good, uh, good Brit, a good Englishman, said Jesus... The heart of the Christian faith is the wildest, most radical guy you'd ever come across. I found myself drawn to that character. Not the kind of fluff that we like to box his religion. So Jesus was radical in how he approached his life. For Albert Einstein, he wasn't a Christian. No man can read the Gospels, he said, without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. That's why scripture, I have to agree, scripture is important. I'm a Jew, but I am thralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. So for Albert Einstein, Jesus was this luminous figure. Vincent van Gogh, an artist. His father was a reformed minister. He said this. He lived serenely as a greater artist than all of the artists working in living flesh. This matchless artist made neither statues, nor pictures, nor books. He made living men into immortals. Even people who do not follow or trust in Jesus can acknowledge that Jesus was a historical, brilliant man. But Jesus is a lot more than that. And this morning, we're going to explore whether you know him or not as your Lord, whether you like him or not, we're going to explore who Jesus is and why he really came to earth all of those years ago. But if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start looking at the Scriptures this morning, at this phenomenal story of Jesus. And so we see in this passage here that Jesus, it says in verse one here of chapter two of Mark, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. So they gathered there and there was no more room left. Jesus has been traveling around Galilee, And uh, I think there's a map here of um, the area that Jesus would have been traveling around. So you've got Judea in the the south, and then you've got Samaria in the middle. And then in the top of the ancient land of Israel, you've got Galilee. And Jesus has been traveling around that area. And he was born in Nazareth, which you can see is in the red, there in the middle of the map. But in Matthew 4, it tells us that Jesus made his home in Capernaum. And so Christ has come back to Capernaum to to be there. And everybody wants to be in his presence. Everybody wants to see Jesus. They've heard of the great things he's been doing. He's come home and people want to be there and the house is full. Arguably, we don't know for sure, this could be Jesus' actual home that he's in. We don't know. But whatever home he is in, it's Busy, it's full. People want to hear him, all sorts of people. Everybody in that town wants to see and hear of Jesus. Perhaps there are some, there are definitely some who want to see miracles performed. And so we see four friends who are concerned for a friend who is unable to walk. They get up on top of the roof of this house. It's so busy that they can't get in. And they want, the only way they feel that they can get in is through the roof. What a job that would have been in order to get the friend to Jesus. To get through a roof. And I love that. And there are two things I want to just quickly point about this. This little beginning passage. One is that these people are doing life together. There's a problem, and then there's a group of people, and they want to do life together. What a lovely picture that is. They are friends, and they're bringing this man to Jesus. And I think this is like church, or what church should be, that we do life together. It's our 40th anniversary next Sunday, and I met up with Steve Looney uh, in the week. And he was one of the the first, him and Sue were one of the first people to, uh, to, to one of the first members of the church. And Steve was telling me the story how when they bought this land, it was just a house and a few barns. And that everybody, everybody came together on a Saturday. And we'll share this a bit more next week. But everybody came together on a Saturday and they had to redevelop the house. And the house, I think, Steve, the house is still standing, right? The house that they bought is still, I think it's my office, he was telling me. So I'm in the original house that the church was. But the building inspector wanted deeper, solid foundations. So everybody came in and they, some of them had to get on their backs and they had to go underneath and they were just shoveling dirt and grit and putting other things in there for weeks. Every Saturday, everybody, husbands and wives and kids came in shoveling. And I think this is one of the original, I don't know if it's for this extension. One of the extensions, this was the original shovel that was used to do some of the shoveling. Uh, So this this is in my office on a wall somewhere just to remember the hard work that has gone into building a church. And so, They were were coming together. Everybody was coming together to develop the church. And there's something beautiful about people coming together in life. That's what church is about. The early Christians, it says in Acts 2 verse 42, continuously devoted themselves to fellowship. And the word for fellowship in that Acts passage is koinonia. Koinonia. And that koinonia means to have something in common and to share. And as these friends are coming together, they're sharing an experience together. And as Christians, we share something together. We are united in Jesus Christ. We are to share the life of Christ with one another. And together we grow on the foundations, not of Steve Looney, but the foundations of Jesus Christ. This church has been built on solid foundations from what people have been doing, but our faith is built on the solid foundations of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ, and our aim is to grow into more like Jesus Christ. I love the church because we are able to live life together in Jesus Christ. Peter stares like this. He says, we are like living stones coming together. We are unable to carry the Lord on our own. This is why the church is so important, where we can pray together. We're going to be doing more praying as a church together. We can keep each other accountable. We can talk freely with each other in love. We can listen. We can cry. We can laugh. We can challenge each other together. Just do life together and encourage each other. Build one another up. And that's what these friends are doing with this, with this man. They are doing life together. And the second thing I want to highlight is that Jesus Christ is in this, in this room and we don't know who's in there. It could be all sorts. It could be tax collectors. It could be Pharisees in there. All sorts of people. And it makes me ask the question, everybody wants to see Jesus and Jesus is hanging out with everybody. Who are we hanging out with in life? Who are we doing life with? Are we doing life together, just in our little Christian spheres? Or are we getting out more and sharing the love of Jesus with others? I've just joined a football team, a soccer team, um, with the Cowichan Valley Association called the Steelheads. And it's um, a group of guys who come together, they're a bit rough, they're a bit ready, um, which is fine, I'm in good company. And at the end of the game, they drink beers together and hang out together. And I love it, because they know me as a pastor. And so I'm able to go, and two of them were scrapping on Wednesday night in training. And I was able just to come over. Oh, Pastor Simon was so sorry, Uh, you know? And I'm like, be blessed, you know? Like, (laughs) don't do it again. It's great. Or when they swear, they're dropping all of these like words, right? And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor Simon. I'm like, don't do it again. <laughs> it's great that we're able to be in these people's lives, but they respect it. It's amazing. And I just pray that they start coming in. Tristan's here this morning. I play football with Tristan. It's good. We want to keep praying. Who are we hanging out with in life? Jesus is there. The house is packed. And we get these people, and we see that they go into the roof. There's a picture I've got of some houses with flat roofs. Yeah, uh, this is what the houses would have looked like back uh, then and today. Uh, You can see, and flat roofs were normal. It's in a hot country. It's somewhere where you can go out and you can eat. It would have been normal on an evening to go out onto your flat roof. Uh, and just have a meal there and just just cool down. And so these friends start digging a hole in the roof and it would have been a huge job, pulling materials, straw and mud and cross beams to in order to get this man in. It would have been a huge job. The hole would have been quite sizable to lower in a man (laughs) through this hole. And I can only imagine this room is packed out of people. Imagine being in there, and Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden you just see the scratching in the roof. And then you're looking up and it would have taken, how long will it take? Half an hour, an hour to get through. And everyone's just sitting there, just waiting. Okay, dust's coming down. And not once does anybody complain. What are these guys doing? Putting a hole in my roof. I love it. I think... It's a real picture, just how determined these people are to meet and encounter Jesus Christ. The question I want us to ask this morning is, what is our greatest need in our own lives? For these, they felt they were able to go through all of this time and effort in order for this man to be healed. The greatest priority for these people is for this man to be healthy again. That's their greatest need right now. But Jesus doesn't deal with that. Jesus deals with something better. What about you and I? What is our greatest need right now in our lives? What are we pursuing? What is our standard in life? Is it our health? Is it money? Is it our careers? What is driving us? What is our priorities right now? You see the Bible, there's two standards. John says, that we either seek things of the world or we seek things in uh, we seek things of, of God. And I've got a balloon here. And I think this represents many things of the world. I hope this works. I've got no idea if it does. But this balloon what is it? It's just a balloon. Who likes balloons? Everybody likes balloons, right? Get your hand in the air. Who doesn't like a balloon? Yeah, we all like balloons. This balloon's really special because it has Really cool, it does something really cool, I think. Look at that, is that really cool? I don't know. (sighs) Can we get them lights off? What do you think? Is that, can you see that? Is that a cool balloon or what? (laughs) Oh, don't clap it, it's not that cool. (laughs) There you go. And I think this for me represents the world, right? The things of the world, the shiny things of the world. And we like shiny things and we get drawn to them and they're appealing to us. And you think, oh, I like that, I want that. And it could be money or it could be our careers or it could be a good British university and we wanna go (laughs) and pursue them things, right? And these are important for us. And they can almost replace God. But the thing is, them LED lights or whatever's in there will fade. They look shiny and appealing now. But tomorrow it'll just be a deflated balloon of plastic that we throw in the garbage. And yet we want these things. We want the shiny things in life. We pursue them. And they become so important in the moment. And God gets pushed aside. And we pursue these things and we might get them. But do they ever truly make us happy? Do they ever truly make us content in life? Tomorrow, it'll be in the garbage. Whereas the alternative, John says, is God. What's our standard that we're living for? Are we looking for things of the world? Are we seeking for eternity with God? These men here are seeking for uh, this man to be healed. And so, my point, my first point that I want to make this morning is that they want to seek Christ. My second point is this, what does Jesus give the man? Verses 5 to 7, they want the health. When Jesus, verse 5, when Jesus saw the faith, he said to the the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They want this man to be healed and yet Jesus, what does he do? He says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, son, be healed. Get up and walk. He says, your sins are forgiven. They're not looking for that. They're looking for healing and Jesus he forgives their sins. It's not what they're expecting. And yet Jesus addresses something far greater. So these men are probably disappointed thinking, why oh, is my sins forgiven? I'm not a sinner. And, and then the Pharisees are all angry because Jesus is forgiving sins. Only God can do that. Nobody's happy right now in this room. Everybody's mad or disappointed with Jesus. And you know that you're onto something here. The man was a sinner, just like you and just like me. We are all sinners, Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But who had this man sinned against? Not against Jesus. Who was Jesus to say that the man had been forgiven? Just imagine after church, you go to brew life and you buy yourself a coffee. And you put it down, and it's vanilla latte. It's one of those fancy ones. And you, you put it down, and someone comes along and drinks your coffee. And you're all a little bit, you're a bit mad with them, right? And I come over, I see what goes on. And I go over, and I say to the person who drank your coffee, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> I forgive you. It's got nothing to do with me. It's between the two of you, Right? And yet this is what Jesus is doing. He's forgiving this man's sin. Jesus is claiming to do something only God can do. He's claiming to be able to forgive people's sins. And this is why Jesus came into the world in the first place. He didn't come to make you richer or healthier or more attractive. Jesus came to forgive us our sins and allow us to have a relationship with God once again. That's our real, deepest, most important need to know that our slate has been wiped clean before God. According to the Bible, our relationship with God has been broken. We were made by Him to know Him and to love Him. But humanity's put ourselves first. We've decided to prefer to live our own lives. We've decided that we would rather seek the shiny things in life and put God second place. And that's the human nature. And this is why Jesus came. So what is our greatest need? We need to know God's forgiveness. We need to know that God forgives us and restores us. Encouragingly, 1 John 2, verse 2, tells us. 1 John 2, verse 2. If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to it together. 1 John 2, chapter, verse 2. My dear children, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ is, is that atoning sacrifice, is the atonement, so that we could be at one moment with God again. You and I deserve the death penalty for our crimes, for our sins. And I know it doesn't seem like that, because you might say, well, I'm a good person. I don't deserve that punishment. But before God, each and every one of us deserves that spiritual punishment. You say, I'm, I'm a good person. But really, deep down, God knows us. God knows not just the bad things we've done, but the bad things that we would do if we knew we can get away with it. And so we need the forgiveness of Jesus in our lives. So when Jesus says to this man, your sons are forgiven, he also signs his own death sentence because Jesus would take upon Everyone's sinner on himself, on that cross, on that Easter weekend, so that we could be restored with God once again. That's why we take communion. If you're new here and you don't know what's going on right now with this table, that's why we take communion to remember what Jesus Christ has done so that we can be restored with God again if we put our trust in Him. And that's what Jesus gives this man. He gives this man the opportunity to be forgiven. And that's what he gives to everyone who will accept it. He gives a real complete forgiveness of sins. So this is what Jesus does. But what does Jesus demonstrate to the people here in verses 12? What Jesus did was just remarkable. My third and last point. In verse 8, Jesus says to the man, Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? People are angry, right, with Jesus. Which is easier to say to the the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man, I tell you, take your mat and go home. And the man goes home. It was easier for Jesus to say to the man, your sins are forgiven. Because it's one of, how do you know that? We don't have to have any visual evidence. It was easier for Jesus to say that, right? You believe him or you don't believe him. It was a lot harder for Jesus to say to somebody who can't walk, you walk. And so that's what Jesus did. In order for that, you might believe in me. I'm going to say to this man, stand up and walk. And he did. And so we can know with certain a certainty. I believe in the scriptures with certainty that if you trust in Jesus and you ask God to forgive your sins, your sins will be forgiven and you can have a relationship with God once again. And I love when it says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, stand up. The Son of Man, who is the Son of Man? In the scriptures, the most referred uh, name given to Jesus is Um, Christ. So when people refer to Jesus, the most common name for Jesus is Christ. The second most used word for Jesus is Lord. And the third most used name for Jesus, to refer to Jesus, is the Son of Man. So what's significant about the Son of Man? Jesus uses the name Son of Man for himself more than any other name in the Bible. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. So what is the son of man? The son of man can be found in Daniel chapter seven. And the son of man is referred to the appearance of a heavenly figure. It is the son of man who has been appointed by the ancient of days, God, who will judge all of the earth. When the Old Testament talks about the son of man, It is the son of man who will give over his kingdom for all of us for all eternity. The son of man who descends and returns from heaven. It is the son of man who describes himself as the person who is under the authority of the, the ancient of days. When Jesus says he's the son of man, he's saying that he's the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity. And I love that. This is Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? He's the Son of Man. He's the eternal Lord, the second person of the Trinity of God. He is sovereign. He sustains all things. He loves you. He cares for you. He's there for you always. Who is Jesus to you? He's more than an artist. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a political leader. He's your savior. He's my savior. He's my Lord. This is Jesus. And deep down, people knew this. They were amazed and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. When we think of Jesus, do we praise God The greatest miracle I've ever seen in my life is when people commit their lives to Christ. When I know that they are no longer destined for a lost eternity, but they're going to have Christ now in their lives and for all eternity. The greatest miracle. And we can praise God for that. I love baptisms. They are are the best services because we know people are committing their lives to Jesus. If our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent a professor If our greatest need had been for technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been for a revolution, God would have sent a politician. If our greatest need had been for pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness. So God sent us a saviour.